Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. Have you seen me die, Spag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. Like many people, I'm easing into some sort of skewed normality following the pandemic lockdown in the UK. I'm still working from home and I've convinced myself that I'm saving enough money from not commuting that I can spend more money on games. Recently, I've been buying the collection of 2D20 Conan books from Modiphius, despite having them all on PDF from the Kickstarter campaign that launched the project. They're really attractive books that build on the core rules in interesting ways. Sure, some are better than others, but who doesn't want the rules for mass battles from Conan the Mercenary, or the extended magic rules in The Book of Skelos, or a chance to stick a Shoggoth in it from The Horrors of the Hyborian Age. You have to admire the sheer scale of the Conan Adventures in an Age Undreamed of by Modiphius. 21 books, lavishly illustrated, and there's some inspiring adventure hooks within all those words, words, words. I'm adding them to my great library of RPGs, to the right, along with my Grognard files. Here on my left is my ridiculous homage shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, just get a tap. Ah, yes. The Eternal Champion has appeared as Princess Day from At the Earth's Core, a pulp classic from British 70s cinema. Conan doesn't need an introduction. He's part of the architecture of pop culture. He's an iconic hero that first appeared in the series of pulp stories penned by Robert E. Howard in the 1930s. Set in a prehistoric swords and sorcery Hyborian world. There's been movies, comic books, pastiche novels and a terrible TV series as a brand he continues to stalk popular culture like a panther. And when it comes to Conan and role-playing games, Howard's tropes and archetypes have infused everything from D&D, TNT, to OSR favourite Barbarians of Lemuria. There have been advanced Dungeons and Dragons tying adventures, complete with Arnold Schwarzenegger on the front, GURP supplements and the extensive Mongoose D20 range in the 2000s. TSR produced the licensed Conan the role-playing game in 1985, designed by David Zeb Cook, which was a version of the phaser rip system used in TSR's Marvel Superheroes and Star Frontiers. We had a session for the Patreon's monthly one-shot club last month, and we admired its elegance. For example, a single roll resolved a chance to hit and damage. Contemporary reviews were damning. Some criticised its hasty production. 
while others accused it of being dumbed down. This is from Imagine, number 29, August 1985. Now bear in mind that Mike Dean was writing this for a TSR house magazine, bemoaning the increase of RPGs based on books and films, and saying, With this has become the unfortunate tendency for such games to be written in a very simple English. Conan RPG is no exception, and although it could be argued that the style encourages younger players to grasp the concept of the game more easily, one cannot help but feel talked down to by its authors. Ironic, isn't it? A game in the 80s was decried for not being complicated enough. Now we crave the simple, the clear, the cogent or the familiar. And when it came to 2D20 Conan, our Wednesday group were initially repelled by its apparent complexity. It was immediately labelled as a crunchy system. However, I'm not wholly convinced that it is that crunchy. It's just a bit difficult to explain. To help determine whether the accusation of crunch should be upheld against the 2D20 Conan, I've asked our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, to the bar and adjudicate in our Judge Blythe Rules section, which is the first time we've done it for a while. It was far too much crunch and complexity for fellow lifelong armchair adventurer Eddie. He bowed out of the game after a couple of sessions. When he'd gone, I buried his character alive with falling masonry. His body was exhumed by gibbering undead ghouls, who tore off his arm, ate it, and threw the rest of the body into a doom pit of a wailing tentacle god, while his hapless companions looked on. He forgot that underneath this veneer, I'm a messianic megalomaniac. To prove there were no hard feelings, Eddie returns to this podcast. He's been beamed live from Ed's shed, where we have a few beers and watch Conan the Barbarian in Grogobox. But first, let's open the box with Jason Durrell, who oversaw this magnificent project. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, part of the podcast where we look backwards to go forwards. And this time I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling with writer, game designer and RPG project manager extraordinaire, Jason Durrell. Hello there, Jason. Uh, hello, Dirk. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, good to see you. And how's life in lockdown been treating you over in Berlin? Um, it's actually pretty good. Um, I've been, um, we started early with the lockdown, um, uh, just, um, for personal reasons. And, um, you know, the life of a stay at home editor, um, freelance editor, writer is not that much different from the life of a quarantined at home writer, editor. So, um, so not a lot of difference. I find that I'm eating at home, you know, far more and expanding the, uh, the cooking repertoire and I think I've lost um three or four kilos which is great wow. but um it's mostly the same sort of uh, same sort of a business and in fact I would say I'm actually busier than prior because now everyone knows I'm home 
and I work with people in um, the U.S., the U.K., and um, uh, France and Germany. And so, um, like everybody, just knows they can reach me. So I find that I'm I'm pretty much busy all the time, as opposed <laughs> to you know being in blank spots where I was off at a writing uh, group or something like that. We, you joined us from Berlin, but uh, clearly you didn't uh, start off in Berlin. So uh, where, where, where were you born? Where, you, where were you brought up? I was born in Oregon State in uh, the United States and grew up in, throughout the Pacific Northwest. Um, my father um, moved us around a lot. So I lived in Oregon, Washington, um, uh, Wisconsin for a brief period. Um, a little bit of time in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, ended up when I went to college, uh, going to college in Washington, and then I spent six years in Japan after that, wow. um, teaching English at a, a small regional college there. And then I came back, stayed mostly in Seattle, and then I moved to uh, Austin, Texas. In the middle of uh, 15 years in Austin, I spent a year in California. And then um, returned to Austin, and then six years ago, packed up and moved to Berlin. And wow. I've been here, you know, since 2014. That's quite a journey. And as you were traveling around, were you continuing gaming all that time? Um, yeah, I started gaming really early with, um, I don't know if it was the first edition D&D. It wasn't the uh, plastic envelope Dungeons & Dragons. It was the first boxed Dungeons & Dragons, the one that... Um, had the color picture of the guys fighting the dragon on it, sort of shot from behind them with the dragon looking right at the camera. Um, and you got like the three booklets inside that were very, um, you know, all black and white, very crude, not the uh, basic D&D as we know it, but early, early D&D. So yeah, I, I started very, very early and then picked up, um, you know, almost anything that um, was gaming related. For some reason, all of the games um, were available at a pet store like they had it was a pet store that also had um like model trains and odd like hobby type type of stuff like weird little miniature things and then just they had a shelf full of games my friends and i would go we got boot hill top secret most of the early run games and played all of them uh, relentlessly dragon quest um uh, not that much space opera, but um, yeah, and then Villains of Vigilantes, um, and then RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, Stormbringer, just boom, 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 and it felt like we would pretty much, you know, somebody would get one new game, we'd play that, and then that would just fold into a whole bunch of games in the same genre. You know, Paranoia, um, Time Master, uh, Yisgarth, um, which was actually kind of a sentimental favorite of mine. And um, ElfQuest, Ringworld, I mean, it just went on and on, you know, Middle-earth role-playing, all of these different uh, games. We pretty much, my friend group and I, we just devoured all of them. And so it sounds like you must have been playing all the time then. Um, at least twice a week, I think. And um, over the summer, maybe three or four times a week. I was lucky in that I lived in my neighborhood. There were about six uh, people that were all into gaming. And so we played a lot, you know, um, and I think I had at least a couple of different friend groups that were also um, gamers. And so some of that there were, I think I was the only person in common with them. And so sometimes there would be like a sleepover and we'd run Stormbringer all night, you know, top secret, 
where we'd uh, you know do the whole afternoon or something like that. So so yeah, I, I did, and that was all through um, junior high and high school. I did some gaming in college, not as much as many people think. And then when I went to uh, Japan, a friend was quite into. Um, we played a lot of Traveler. We played some Dark Conspiracy, and um, we basically played a lot of odd games. And then I picked up uh, Amber Diceless role playing and got into that quite a bit. And so I would frequently fly to America and just hit gaming conventions like Gen Con or AmberCon or any local conventions I would uh, hit when I was visiting Seattle. So, so quite a lot of stuff. And, and so during that time, so when you hit the cons, were you uh, mainly playing or running games? Uh, yeah, I, I end up running a lot of games actually, because, you know, I'm the person who kind of, uh, really, really wants to play a lot of cool stuff. And if somebody else was going to volunteer it, I would happily be a player. But I end up jumping behind the screen more often than not solely because I want to uh, I want to play or experience a particular game. And yeah. I mean, kudos. I'm just noticing on the, the, the wall behind you there, is that a map of tragic millennium Europe? It is, yeah. I'm just I, in the middle of a Hopman campaign. So. Oh my God. I'm so, I, I, I know that Envy is not a particularly great, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a deadly sin or whatnot, but I am quite envious of you. I just purchased a copy of uh, Hawkmoon. Um, the uh, an ebay copy and so it just arrived and i'm already sort of contemplating what to do with it you also even now you know you, you give a great repertoire of games that you played back in the day but even now you you're a regular game player aren't you i i noticed from your facebook feed that oh, yeah. you've got a regular thing so 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 what games are you playing at the moment what's on the what's on the mm. um let's table? see i i just um wrapped up a 16, 17 session uh, Coriolis campaign. We're playing through the the big icons campaign that uh, Freeladon published. Um, we're playing through that. We reached a good stopping point, and I decided that I needed to take a little time off because I was running just way too much. So um, we stopped with Coriolis. Um, I'm running a play test of a basic role-playing game um, title we have not announced at Chaosium, um, and that uh, we're just getting started on that. I'm running a RuneQuest game for a group of players at a, a local bookstore, actually. Um, they, uh, um, I used to go every periodically and do a demonstration game for them, you know, like when there would be some new product or they would have an open gaming thing. And then they asked me if I could run something um, for them, just for the store people. And uh, because they can't play when they've got customers in the store, you know, they have to stand behind the counter and ring people up. And so I started running a game um, like after hours. So we would play in the bookstore, but then we uh, adjourned to, um, one of their apartments and so and they've actually all become really dear friends so it's um i'm still doing that the that's otherland book handlung uh, otherland bookstore if you happen to be in berlin wonderful bookstore um and then i'm running a rune quest campaign for a group of people um some of whom are longtime RuneQuest fanatics, and uh, actually most are longtime RuneQuest fanatics. And we're doing a lot of playtesting of uh, material for upcoming releases. Yeah. And I think that's it. And then every so often I play a game with a few groups that are local or distributed. 
um, here and there. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I go through cycles. Sometimes I find that I'm running or playing games all the time, and then I'll go like a week or so without. So it's a mix. And what makes a game stick for you? What is it that you look for in a, in a game when you're playing it? Um, I think that it is a combination of um, a system that I think enables uh, the fun, you know, that doesn't get in the way of um, people doing what they want to do. And um, I think that as a uh, GM, the stuff that really appeals to me is um, stuff where you feel like you don't have to actually memorize every tiny detail of the setting in order to play a um to get into the game and to create new stuff. And I personally am a huge fan of the sort of mix of uh, fantasy and science fiction. And so games like uh, Coriolis appeal to me quite a lot or Fading Suns back in the day. Um, and so there you go, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, Hawkmoon is, you know, currently a glimmer in my eye. And um, some of the classic stuff I absolutely love. Um, you know, I don't tend to play a lot of classic fantasy. I, I finished uh, playing a D&D game fairly recently. The GM decided to wrap it up. Um, and then before that, we did Pet and Dragon. But I find basically games where the character is more important than necessarily their attributes, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how did you make the transition from being such an enthusiastic player to writing and uh, working in mm -hmm. the industry? Um, I was, I had picked up a copy of Dragon Magazine when I was uh, visiting the U.S. and living in Japan. I read it on the way back, um, on the airplane back, and I saw an advertisement for Amber Diceless Role Playing. And I had, the Amber books uh, were some of my absolute favorite fantasy of all time. And so I, um, there was an address to get a copy of the game. And I sent, um, I sent in a letter saying, I absolutely want a copy of this game. How can I get one? And they said, okay, send a money order or a check. And so I sent it, they sent it via international postage. And then, um, I think my Japanese phone number had been um, printed on the check. Oh, in case there'd been a problem. I think I had to fill out or he had to fill out something for customs to get it to me. And then um, Eric Lujic, the actual publisher and writer and designer of the game, just called me up out of the blue. And I don't think he really thought that that seemed strange, but that's kind of the way Eric was, where he just was like, oh, this random guy in Japan ordered a copy of Amber. Okay. And I'm going to see who this person is. And so he uh, called me and I just said, I asked him in the call if he was taking uh, submissions because I had a lot of free time while I was teaching in uh, Japan and I'd love to, you know, I, I thought writing games would be amazing. And, um, and so he said, sure, what would you want to write? And I, I gave him a pitch and he accepted half of the pitch. Um, he, because I had this crazy idea for this flip book that would be, uh, how familiar are you with Amber? I'm you not know, familiar with it at all. Actually. Okay. No. Well, there's a, um, you know, it's this sort of magical city that is um, filled with these immortal characters. And in the books, there's like a, a ghost-like um, version of it that floats in the sky above. And then there's an underwater version of the city that's like a mirror reflection of it down below. And each of them serves different functions in the narrative. And I wanted to do it as a flip book. 
So you would get like this book and there'd be a cover about the undersea place and then you'd flip it over and then there'd be a cover and content about the, uh, the magical in the air kingdom. And uh, Eric said, I want to write the, you know, magical in the air kingdom, but you can write the underwater kingdom book. And so that was my first real uh, professional exposure. That book has never been published. Wow. Um, it, yeah. It, um, for various reasons, the uh, publisher, uh, Eric, decided um, he just got out of gaming, basically. Um, and I think that was one of, you know, anyway, I did a lot of work for uh, his company on other projects. And then that manuscript, though it is complete, it sort of floats around the Internet like a ghost ship. People have sort of assembled it and put some of the artwork that was done for it together. And I think there's a PDF somewhere out there. But um I do not have a copy of it, though. I've kind of looked at the text recently, and I was very embarrassed by, you know, my my 25-year-old writing. And so I decided that I was just going to uh, put that down. But that was my first uh, break. And then started writing a lot for little fanzines um, and some professional magazines like Vortex and uh, White Wolf's Infobia and a few others. And then... Um, I think I got into the Chaosium orbit quite early and um, uh, started writing various things for them. And then that um, snowballed and I found myself years later um, uh, writing almost full-time freelance. Um, but uh, I always had a nine to five job as a computer game designer um, for most of 2000 to 2017. And so um so writing uh, pen and paper RPGs was kind of a fun side hobby. At the time. And so what was that? Was that uh, writing narratives for um, computer game? Um, I began as a world builder for an MMO called Shadowbane, which was the last of the garage um, big computer games where a bunch of guys got together and basically built their own engine, built their own server code, built their own shaders, built their own sound you know, I think we ended up getting a different sound engine, but one of these for a, a bunch of people who had really no idea what they were doing, who tried to get a game shipped. And so I was the uh, lead world builder on that and a uh, designer. And then I went to work on uh, Star Trek online at um, Perpetual um, and a couple of other M uh, MMOs. I was always in the MMO field and then a few others as either a lead narrative or a content builder, creator, and sometimes system guy. Um, and then I uh, eventually brought that over to Berlin where I was, uh, or well, in Austin, I was a lead, creative lead for um, uh, a couple of MMOs, um, Wizard 101 and Pirate 101. And then I trained my replacement and eventually moved to Berlin where <coughs> Where I was the uh, lead for Drakensong Online, a, a German MMO. Wow. And so I've got here my complete Chronicles of Conan here. Oh, nice. So, yeah, yeah. I have the same one on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. So we've we've been playing uh, Conan, Conan Adventures in an Age Undreamed of, and we've oh, nice. we, we've really enjoyed it. What what is it? Do you think about Hyboria and uh, Conan that makes it such a an appealing setting well i think that there's um it mixes the exotic and the familiar you know the names and the, the notion of this sort of reincar or reoccurring historical sweep gives you um 
some very clear um, cultural analogs. So you don't need to like search in your mind about who are the Zingarans or who are the Aquilonians. And um, you understand very quickly and we're sort of culturally encoded to understand that and um, appreciate it. So I think those cultures in the Hyborian world resonate very well with the uh, most re uh, players. Um, it's a heroic setting. It's a grim setting. Um, there's uh, there's not a lot of what I would say the uh, nobility that you sort of have to uh, um, accept if you're playing in a more traditional high fantasy game. Um, and um, there's a, a little more desperation. You know, every fight could be your last. Uh, this sort of grim inevitability that. Um, the gods maybe they're out there, but they don't really seem to have a lot to uh, concern with what's happening on, uh, you know, on this this mortal world. And um, another thing that I really think uh, resonates and makes those games fun, and I think I mentioned it in one of the uh, one of the pieces I wrote for the Conan game, um, is that um, because Howard was such a um, he was a huge movie buff. And he would go to movies often in Austin, um, you know, all the time. And he would come back and he would frequently, you know, he'd see a movie and then he'd oftentimes get inspired and start writing stories sort of uh, that had his movie watching, you know, like he'd see a Western and he'd write some Westerns and he'd see, you know, uh, uh, some kind of a desert adventure film and then he'd write something like that. Um, and also he was also pitching to different markets all the time. And so what you ended up with, with uh, in the Hyborian world is a lot of these areas, they almost feel like movie studio backlots. Mm. Like you could yes. go and be like, let's, let's do a Western. So then you're up on the Aquilonian frontier and you're fighting Picts and it's um, in the Gunderland and the Bosonian marches. And then you're saying, let's do desert adventure. And so then you're out in Afghulistan and um, whatnot. You could say, you know, let's do a, um, you know, sort of a, a jungle adventure. And then you go down to the Black Kingdoms and have adventures there or or whatnot. And the, let's say you want to do something that's very, very medieval feeling. Then you, you're in Aquilonia and the media, you know, in full armor with knights on horses and lances and all of that, that stuff. So I feel that that's, um, that's the wonderful thing about that uh, setting is that you can sort of, pick and choose whatever parts of it you want to tell whatever stories you want. And um, the fact that there is such a rich and diverse setting also uh, makes, gives people uh, their characters, you know, they can be from all over. So you can have the equivalent of a, a Spanish duelist next to a Viking, you know, yes. that sort of stuff yeah. with a Zingaran and, uh, you know, uh, Aesir or a Vanir. Yeah. So and it's not really any problem. So this this is a massive project, and how did you come to be involved in it? And how do, how do you start transferring that into a role playing game? Well, um, <laughs> all right, uh, I um, was working on a project for Modifius called uh, Salt on the Mountains of Madness for their Octum Cthulhu book, where. Um, they had sort of had a very loose outline for that book and they um, had a bunch of writers write individual bits and they said, Oh, well, we, we just need somebody to sort of stitch together the individual bits and 
turn it into a thing. And then I, I took a look at the individual bits and they were all fine, all in each and of themselves, but there was no story there other than they were just locations with, in some cases, no characters. You know, it was just a really interesting location, but I was like, what drives the narrative through this section? So I had to basically take this very thin outline and flesh that out. So what should have been, say, you know, 20 or 30,000 words um, turned into this epic 260,000 word monstrous, huge campaign book. And um, and while I was finishing that up, um, Chris uh, Birch asked me, he said, would you be interested in joining the Conan team? I was like, absolutely. So um, I had a meeting with this just team of absolute industry stalwarts and um, uh, experts um, like Jeff Shanks and Mark Finn and uh, Patrice Lewinette. We did this massive conference call, but because of some um, uh, internet problem, I had to... Uh, just basically sit in on the call at a coffee shop around the corner and my microphone wasn't working. And so I just basically listened the whole time and like typed notes occasionally. So I pretty much was expecting that my role in that would be very minor. Um, but I was happy to write some stuff. And then um, there was another editor in charge. And after a while, um, Chris came to me and said, I think we're going to, we need another editor to take the project to, uh, to completion and so um they brought me in at that point it was actually on my birthday the day he called me just complete coincidence but he you know said do you think you can take over the project and i'd never done anything of that size or scale in pen and paper stuff in mmo stuff i it was not a big uh, surprise or anything like that and i think it was mainly my training and my professional uh training as a mmo lead designer that let me manage the team and get um, the Kickstarter fulfilled, which was just a massive undertaking. I had no idea it would end up being, you know, a, uh, uh, the better part of five years to, from the Kickstarter ending to the uh, release of the final products, which are somewhere in the Modifius warehouse now. And, I believe. and um, one of the things that you have to deal with, of course, is um, they have a house system, don't they? Um, the yes. 2D20 system. So how did you go about uh, working that into um, the world of Howard? Um, well, the first thing I did was I, I literally went through every Howard story and took copious notes. Um, like, And then we, we had the framework of the 2D20 system, and um, it was being uh, fleshed out for uh, Mutant Chronicles 3rd edition um, in parallel with Conan. So they were sort of being developed neck and neck. And then, um, and so the two system designers, Nathan Dowdell and Ben Graybeaton, um, were working along with myself and some others. And we were basically trying to figure out how can we pump this system and get it feel like the gritty edge to it. And we we're fielding ideas. I mean, for the most part, I would say that, you know, 80 or so percent of the system design stuff was between Nathan and Ben with the rest being this sort of round table of other contributors. Um, and um, a lot of feedback back and forth, a lot of renames of things, um, uh, tweaking of various aspects. And then we finally came up with something that we liked. And um, at the same time, Infinity started to ramp up. So we literally had three different versions of the same setting and or the same system 
that were being developed sort of in parallel and they were all feeding each other to the point where sometimes ideas that were jettisoned for Conan may have ended up in uh, uh, Infinity or um, vice versa. So it was it was a it was a team effort with the two tent poles of that giant tent being Nathan and Ben. And uh, I mean, it, it's it's great how um, you know I think it's the only game where you're able to uh, cut the head of your enemies off and uh, intimidate your opponents. Yes. <laughs> I love, I absolutely <laughs> love the display attacks. I think they are awesome. Yeah, it's great. And. Um, uh, the other thing is I feel that the system is built in the, the, the Hyborian world is built into the life path, isn't it? And that's very key to it, isn't it? The uh, character build. Yeah. yeah. And that was something that um, when we cooked up the, the notion of the, uh, the core um, nine books, the Conan, the thief, Conan, the, the barbarian, Conan, the brain, Conan, the Conan, thugs, as yeah. we always <laughs> call them in our communication. Um, we wanted to have both the core book have this sort of life path system that was very broad enough to cover everybody. And then every book after that would deal more in depth with a life path system that created characters that were specifically suitable for that role. You know, the, whether that be the brigand or whether it be the pirate or um, the uh, scout or king. And, and it's so, good. It, what, what we found useful as well is the online resource as well that allows you to build that character. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, that's Christopher, um, Christopher's baby. And um, I haven't been in touch with him for a while. I sort of stepped back from running the, uh, the line just about, I think, just shortly before um, the COVID crisis began. And so it was late late February, early March, that I relinquished the line and turned it over to um, Matt Tim, who is now running the show at Modifius. And the uh, last um, book that came out was uh, Cull. And uh, I understand that that was one of your conditions, wasn't it, that you attached to doing the project? Yes, that was. I um, I was working with um, uh, Chris... Uh, Chris Birch and Jeff Shanks, and um, we were trying to figure out what the line and Chris lights, and we were trying to figure out what the core books of the line would be. And um, you know, I thought the uh, the bestiary that was a given that we would do the horrors of the Hyborian Age. Um, the uh, ancient ruins book I thought would be a nice, fun one. Book of Skelos and Nameless Cults. Those I think I completely did those books solely because I wanted to have books with those titles. <laughs> and then, um, and also I was thinking a little bit on the, the sort of D and D idea, you know, that model of like, here's the book about all the gods. Here's the book about sorcery. Here's the monster book. Here's the, the ruins book. And then I thought, you know, it would be amazing if we could do a call book. No one has covered call in uh, pen and paper gaming before, as far as I know. And I, I have a pretty exhaustive, knowledge of rpgs and if call has ever appeared as a uh, in print as a uh, an rpg character i have not seen it and so um i brought it up with chris birch and he said oh yeah that sounds cool we'll run it by fred malmberg and see what he thinks and then um as it happened i was at um essen spiel um the year just after we uh we kickstarted the game and i met fred 
amazing guy, such a wonderful person. And I, uh, we bonded very quickly. And I said, uh, Fred, I mean, one of the books I totally want to do for the Kickstarter is, um, oh, no, it was before the Kickstarter because we, we made it a, a, a stretch goal. But I said, I'd really like to do a cull book. And he sort of went, ooh, he got excited about it. And so I said, I really want, it's my labor of love. I want it to be like kind of the last one that comes out that, of the major line. And it's just this variant version because, I mean, uh, I haven't made a secret of it, but of course I, I you know, um, not that many people know, but Cull is my actual favorite uh, Robert E. Howard character. I really love that weird dream logic that sort of permeates those stories. And um, I think Cull is a lot more enigmatic than Conan in some ways. You know, I think he's a lot more philosophical. And at the same time, there's a certain childlike aspect to the character um, where sometimes he seems to be very frustrated by the world he is forced to navigate and um, bewildered sometimes yes. by it. Whereas, um, you know, and he flies off the handle, he makes mis huge mistakes. And whereas Conan, I mean, as much as I, I have spent, you know, written hundreds and thousands of words about that character and um, whatnot, Conan is sort of this sort of perfect everyman, whereas there's anything he puts his hand to, he succeeds in incredibly. He's always one step ahead of, um, I think, nine out of ten of the, the foes he fights. Um, it's rare that he ever just has to go, I think I'm going to bleed here. And um, to the best of my knowledge, Conan never makes a mistake. Mm, like, no. he occasionally, you know, things don't go his way. But, you know, he doesn't fly off the handle and get mad. He usually is more the sort who just laughs about something. Whereas a cull story is, you know, you never know how cull is going to react. Yeah. And um, I, I like that aspect of the character. And I also like the fact that, you know, there's a cull story where he basically spends the whole story just sitting in front of a bunch of mirrors looking at them. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just weird. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the thing with Conan as well is he seems over familiar and i think it's an interesting uh, design choice that you made to focus entirely on the robert e howard version of conan because oh, yeah. my experience of it was through the savage swords of conan the comic right. and through um the uh, homage by lynn carter and uh, right. sprague de camp so yeah. it, I, I think it, i think it that's what strikes me about the game is that it, it's very true to howard's version vision that was a very conscious choice we made very early um, to be charitable to the many, many writers who have contributed to Conan. There is a lot of really wonderful pastiche Conan stuff. There is also a lot of what is, I would say, is not very good. Um, there's a lot of you know, dross or um, very forgettable stuff. And unfortunately, too, we found that... Um, the more you layer on like pastiche stuff, the less it really resembles Howard. I mean, you know, and so it's fascinating because when you really start digging into like what Howard wrote about areas, you find that, um, you know, I mean, like Aquilonia, Aquilonia in um, much of the story seems to be very much the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at what Howard actually imagined and you see where he placed Aquilonia on his map, you realize, oh, you know, Aquilonia is medieval France. 
It's mm -hmm. not, you know, it, it's like late Iron Age France. I mean, when he describes the kind of armor people wear, that's not, it's not Roman legionnaire stuff. That's, you know, we're talking about knights at the hot, you know, the early age of uh, um, Iron Age um, uh, warfare and whatnot. And so, um, and we started realizing that Howard's world was very, very detailed and very, uh, had very strong cultural analogs that I think a lot of people just sort of don't remember or never mm. got or the you know the visual depiction of them just took on its own life and so um we found that it would be really great to get back to that um since we had three conan experts on hand who had a very distinguished authors and um critics and uh, uh folks who have written a lot about conan they were all quite excited about the notion of going straight pure howard and the other thing that it was a very pragmatic decision because that meant that we had, you know, um, this one hardcover right here, this very <laughs> book, yeah. this was what we needed to read and be familiar with. We could go through and we could look at, um, you know, some other Howard stories and we exhaustively combed Howard's other stuff because the connections between many of his stories, I mean, it's fascinating how much of a much larger meta history of the world he connected all these stories to, but um, like, it seemed like it was a much more achievable game to do. That was basically, let's focus on the Howard stuff. You know, let's focus on second level Howard stories and let's just kind of ignore if it doesn't have Howard on the spine or even I think we decided that Lovecraft he gets in because you know Howard and Lovecraft Howard basically said everything Lovecraft wrote is part of the Hyborian world and you know uh, Lovecraft wrote the Hyborian age into his own stuff with some references so we decided they would have been quite pleased to see each other's work referenced and linked so uh, tightly but the other thing is, is it just seemed like it would be a nightmare to try to coordinate, you know, all the freelancers to tell them like, here, read everything, you know, read thousands of comics, um, you know, 150 or so novels. It just seemed like that was not an achievable thing to do, um, to try to, you know, get every tiny little reference there. And um, uh, Mongoose had pretty much done exactly that, you know, they got people like Darledge, who was just an expert of an encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, what do you say, the pastiche, and Ian Sturrock with the core book um, for the Mongoose game. And they gave us the Conan that had all the pastiche and to the point where, you know, it, it was the, the everything goes Conan. And we, we wanted to really have a distinguishing um, uh, factor or feature for the the modifius game that was uh this is robert e howard's conan and we we put it in the title specifically yes. so you know that it is robert e howard's conan and if we extrapolated it would be based on the howard stuff not you know something that um you know somebody like roy thomas or even um uh kurt busaic wrote later yeah, it, it does make it uh, very distinctive. The other thing that makes the rule books and the um, uh, is the artwork uh, that has been managed to commission this. It's, uh, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it, the maps, everything. It, it's great stuff. Mm, yeah. Well, um, 
that goes um, the visual design. I will do a shout out to Michael Cross uh, or Michael Cross, who did just an amazing job with a few collaborators, Dan Algastrand and Mike, Malcolm Walter, for their visual design of the Conan line. And um, and I drove uh, Michal crazy with endless requests for patterns and borders and little tchotchkes to drop into the pages and whatnot. And then we had um, uh, um, Jorge Esteros, I think is his, uh, how you pronounce that, um, doing the original uh, Hyborian world map. And then um, uh, Tobias Trinell, who I think carried every other map in the line um, there. And uh, just they did amazing map work. And um, as a result, I think that there was a very strong unified look to the line. Mm. And the fact that we had, um, you know, this very strong visual style that Michal laid down and later um, uh, uh, Thomas Sook and uh, Jen McCleary, McCleary, McCleary um, took over. And, um, and then uh, the art direction was all very much of a voice with uh, um, Misha Thomas and then later Katja Thomas, no relation, and Chris Light and Rich August all contributing to art direction as well as some from myself. Although I will say that art direction is my least favorite thing to do with <laughs> possibly all of RPGs. <laughs> well, it's a great piece of work. And uh, oh, thank you. For, for us, it's uh, making us excited every fortnight. So, oh, you know, beautiful. You, you, Look, what are you doing with it? Um, we've uh, we, we started with the Vultures of Shem, and so that's allowed us to compete. The, the city states have involved mm. the player characters in a, oh, a awesome. conflict, and uh, we've actually slipped in the Thousand Eyes of uh, Argon Bell in, in the Omar uh, yeah. Bell. Yeah, Omar uh, yeah, Bell. Yeah, that uh, would be Rich August scenario. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we uh, I managed to weave in quite a few things and use some of the uh, battle rules from. Uh, Conan the Mercenary, yeah. That, so that almost sounds exactly like if I were running a Conan campaign now, I'd be doing, I'd be messing around in Shem and uh, doing stuff there with the city-states. Uh, Mesopotamia and Sumeria are like a historical source of interest to me. And so Shem in the day is pretty much exactly where I'd be running a campaign. Yeah. So very cool to hear. Well, thanks, thanks for that, uh, Jason. And uh, you're going to come back and tell us a bit more about your career when you face the Games Master screen. Oh, my goodness. Just by the rules. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. It's been a while since we've seen Judge Blythe in his rules lawyer role, but he's here with his powdered wig on, his ermine, and his finger in his gavel. Uh, you can do it in the comfort of your own home. Hello there, Judge Blythe. Hello there, Dirk. That is one of the advantages. Can finger your gavel in your own home now with lockdown. You're right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since we've looked in depth at rules, isn't it? And we're going to have a look at mm. uh, Modifius's 2D20 uh, system for Conan. In the usual format, you've got to pick mm-hmm. out three rules you like and one rule that you don't. So what's your, what's your three rules that you like first? Well, I have to say before I do this that it's a tricky thing to pick individual rules because it is kind of quite a, it's the word holistic system. It all kind of sticks together quite well. It's it's not like you can, it, there's a real, there's a kind of core mechanic as we, as we think we'll discuss. There's a core mechanic 
and everything sort of springs from the core mechanic. It's very inter- integrated into that core That's mechanic as rather than the two D twenty. Everything seems to revolve around that, doesn't it? That's right. So I suppose the book, the one rule that sticks out is momentum. So first one's momentum. Second one's life paths, life path character creation, and third one is effects. So let's uh, let's start with momentum. So this is uh, at the heart of it, really, isn't it? Because this is to do with how you resolve things. This is how you get your results. That's right. It becomes it's kind of a quick key aspect of the game, really. Because so the way the way two D twenty works is be unsurprised. unsurprised to learn it involves rolling two D twenty, but not yeah. always. Not always two D twenty. So basically, what you do is you've got um, an attribute and a skill, right? So your attribute might be nine and your skill might be two and you add those together. So a relevant attribute, relevant skill, add them together, roll 2d20. And what you're looking for normally is one success, i.e. one of the d20 is equal to or under the target number, which in that example would be 11. You know, if you get two successes and you only require one success you get a point of momentum mm. which you can keep there's an option to pool it for the group where you can keep get that momentum and it's not always as simple as that because sometimes you might be required to get two successes rather than one uh, in really difficult situations you might be required to get three or even four successes which sounds impossible, doesn't it? Because you only got two d twenty. But because if you roll under your skill, so if your skill's two and you roll a one or a two, then that counts as two successes, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's possible with two dice. It is possible theoretically to get four successes, isn't it? A couple of ones under your skill, or a couple of twos. You know, so if your skill was four and your attribute was ten, that'd be fourteen, wouldn't it? You roll less than fourteen, and if you roll less four or less. On one of the dice that's two successes so you can get more successes than just two but momentum then allows you to do certain things so you have this little store of momentum that you build up during a scene and with momentum you can spend it to buy extra dice yeah so you can spend it to buy extra dice and you can also spend it to do certain things certain effects in combat and it powers certain talents as well so your character might have certain talents what's good about momentum and we've found this in play on our, our Wednesday night group. When you build momentum up, it gives you a certain degree of confidence that you can do things and get away with it or mm. be successful. So you could, it allows you to do heroic things, doesn't it? Because you can buy some extra dice and go, right, I'm going to try and do this. And you as games master will say, well, that's quite difficult. I'm going to say three successes. You go, okay, I'm going to buy a couple of extra dice and do it. So Mark's done it, hasn't he, as a barbarian? He did kind of yeah. crowd surfed over some ghouls and lopped the head off the leader. It was a kind of spectacular thing, but he did it. He did it with momentum, combination of momentum and talents. You know, yeah. talents powered by momentum, spending momentum. And I've I've done similar things because my character is kind of quite puny. She's a witch and she's got a bit of magic, but she's she's not certainly not a corner. She's kind of quite puny, uh, but she's managed to pull off a few stunts by having momentum because I think I've got, got three momentum here. I think at one point I had five momentum. I spent four of them to do something, you know, to sort of sneak past an enemy. And it gives you confidence that you can do heroic things. And that it's a really good aspect of the game. Yes. You know, build, build up momentum, spend it at the right points, get away with, you know, get, get away with the wrong way, but, you know, do heroic things. 
Great spectacular events, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like I said, yeah. that, that was a great moment. And the other element of it is you say you can pool the resources because one of the things I like is that um, it, it doesn't really have initiative. So you you take your actions before your opponents, unless there's yeah. unusual situations. So you, you get to act first and it encourages you to work as a team a lot more than other system, other games or other uh, yes. mechanics do because you kind of work to your strengths. So as you say, you're a witch, you're an old crone, well, you're a young crone. Young crone. Uh, <laughs> a young crone. <laughs> but in a, in, a, in a combat situation where you're up against a, a crowd of ghouls, your contribution wouldn't normally be that great. But because mm. you were doing things on the sidelines to assist and create distraction, yeah. Yeah. you could build up momentum for which you could share with Mark's character, Yasmina, exactly, yeah. so she yeah. could walk on the shoulders of these uh, ghouls over to the king and yeah. uh, cut him down. And yeah. so it, 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 I do like that element of it. And it's not like um, something like Benny's that you get in uh, Savage Worlds or other systems. What I like about it is that you as a group of players have generated them through your success. Do not. Yes, that, that's exactly it. And you can start to, you know, successful roles doing one thing can lead to momentum you can spend on something completely different. Yes. Within, within a scene. And that's an interest. It's an interesting thing. Like you say, my character can build up some momentum doing something non-combat related. And that can be pooled to channel into people who are using combat. So it's good because you never feel left out i think my character in a different role-playing game would be incredibly boring to play because she's used to no good at combat the magic's that bit weak but she's got one or two skills that in a big fight she wouldn't be doing anything in a normal game just be carrying at the back but because of momentum it gives you a bit of confidence that you are going to succeed you are going to be able to dodge a bit of you know trouble because you can play with the momentum in and as you said by by creating momentum, doing something non-combat related, you can bounce those points into a pool and help the people with the swords. And that's, it is it is good. It does work as a good kind of team game from that perspective. You know, and like I say, not like, not like Benny's as well, because Benny's are your Benny's. Look points are your points, but momentum can be pushed around. You can keep it. It's good to keep some for yourself, of course it is, but, but you can channel some of it into a pool and mix it about a bit. And that is a good thing, that. It's worked yeah. very well. And um, you've got something to compare it with because you play, you played in the phaser version of Conan, a spell user. We use the term uh, lightly because Boros yeah. wasn't a great magic user, was he? He was a great magic user. I think he had, he had about three spells. What One of them, one his most powerful spell was to make inanimate objects look older than they are. <laughs> That, so, that genuinely was his best spell. So he could he could uh, he give examples of of paper, paper, wine, and cheese. So during this uh, that game, so in that um, older game, that Phaseric game, the only contribution you could make was to turn cheese hard and chuck it at your opponents, which was slightly stupid. It's yeah. a bit stupid, wasn't it? That was just us messing about and thinking this is so ridiculous. But but yeah, but, a, com- a comparatively weak character in. 2d20 is is not as weak as you might think and she's weak she's weak because we'll come on to magic but because magic is it is not as a 
in true Conan style, magic is not about having a list of spells and fireballing people, that kind of thing. It doesn't quite yeah. work like that. It's a bit darker and a bit more complicated. Um, so on the on the converse side, on the um on the on the other side of that, of course, as a games master, I can generate doom. Hmm. Um, so doom works in a similar way to uh, momentum, um, but this is so that the um, characters that I control um, have uh, it can, can use it at, at inopportune moments to make things more difficult. So they can uh, yeah. get re-rolls, or they can uh, you know uh, disarm you at, at key moments. And that, the idea of that, of course, is that you build that up because you're going to build a big, really climax at the end because that's what mm. happens in Conan stories, isn't it? The ultimate conflict. So I'm, I save up my doom for that ultimate conflict so I can make things yes. more interesting. I do, I do like a game with no initiative. I've found over the years, initiative really irritates me. If I had to kill a battle, roll for initiative. Yeah. All right, hang on, hang on. Right. I've got four, yeah, I've got, if you've got, I've got five. Oh, I've got ten. Oh, I've got one. Oh, yeah. I do hate it. And, and it's one of those things you think before you play, and there's, Conan's not the only game that does it. We've played other games that, that do it. Um, I, think, I think Monster of the Week was like that, where we realised in our second game there's no initiative rules. We hadn't realised until that point. But do you like there's no, no real need for initiative? It's surprising. Yeah. It's a perfect rule. Why do you need yeah. initiative? Can you not just do it? Like, decide. Oh, like that, let the players go first. Or just decide narratively who goes first. Yeah. Why do you have to roll initiative? I'm going to make things harder, so I'm going to spend some doom, so I make sure that uh, my characters go first. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a better. It's better, isn't it? In rolling initiative, always. I always find it. I don't know why, but I always find it an irritating aspect of because you build up. You always build up combat, don't you? Like, in, yeah, you're going down a dark corridor, and suddenly some hideous ghoul steps out from the shadows and lunges at you. <laughs> initiative oh man you don't want that do you you want it it lunges at you and it's going to attack you oh yeah. it lunges at you what are you going to do that's what you want isn't it initiatives yeah. is just such a, such a killer it really is it terrible thing yeah but it's that's a good rule in conan no initiative but say through doom and momentum you can control who goes first a little bit yeah last word on momentum the other bit i like about it is how you can use this this is why i don't think it's on the side of crunch this is why i think it allows for more creative and narrative experiences that you can use that momentum to introduce a different story element or something to help you you know so just at that moment you can spend some momentum for some horses to come careering past yeah. so you can leap onto yeah. them and uh, get away or whatever you know so mm. it's no it's good it's good it's good rule it does work okay and uh, the next one is character life path so we've Encountered quite a lot of uh, games recently with a character life path. How does uh, Conan do it, and uh, why is it interesting? Well, I, it's interesting. I think initially as well to go back to your idea of it creating atmosphere. I think life path. You know, I think I'm not sure about other two D twenty systems, but Star Trek does a similar thing. They take you through a life path where you make certain choices and make certain roles and this, that, and the other. And I found that when I played Star Trek, that was a great bit of character creation because it takes it gives you a fully fully fledged character and takes you down certain roads that you're not expecting. So it, it stops you creating 
you know, we're probably all guilty of this, aren't we, as role players, of kind of defaulting to maybe two or three types of character that we like to play. Yeah. And what life path creation does is, whilst you have some choice over, the, you know, you can obviously still play a warrior. I wanted to play a magic user, which I thought, well, that's what I'm going to pick. So you do pick. But it takes you down a road that gives you character, a bit of colour, a bit of atmosphere, a bit of, you know, background that maybe you didn't really think of. It weaves um, you into the setting as well, doesn't it? So I was going, it, Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It, it builds you, you in. Locates you, gives you a background that's connected to the setting. So it makes you feel like you've got a living, breathing character from the world of Conan. Um, and the other thing Life Path Creation does is it had, they have these things called skill trees, don't they? Where yes. as you go through it, there are certain talents, but you have to pick some talents before you get other talents. And I thought that was particularly interesting in terms of my character who's got sorcery because this is a bit of a bugbear in a game like Conan, isn't it? That sorcerers in Conan are not commonplace. And but at the same time sorcery has a degree of power that how do you how do you give someone powerful sorcery without imbalancing the game? Well it does the skill tree thing. You have to pick things like sorcery. I think I had to pick patron, the patron talent which in itself doesn't seem to do anything. But by doing that, it opens up other sorcery talents. So it's a bit like you have to waste the talent to open up other sorcery talents. But that gives the, the game a bit of balance because it means that you're not just picking all the best talents. You've got to go down, navigate down certain roads to get certain things. And the core book gives you um, all the ones that you really need. But mm. the, the model of how this has uh, been produced is that there are individual books that, uh, so I've got Conan the Mercenary in front of me, it gives you mm. some additional character models um, to kind of make it a little shade so you can become like a, an Ashuri, which is um, like a very elite uh, mercenary, so you can take that route if you, if you want to. Mm. And I think what really helps with this is the online uh, character generator otherwise i think it, it would take too long it, 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 would, it would we did we did use the online thing but you're right it did it did take a long time i think as well i suppose going back to crunch you there's a lot in it there is a lot in it i suppose when you create your character for the first time you, there is an element of you don't quite know what you're doing yeah you don't quite know what you're picking you know, unless you've read it all back to back and studied it, you, you're not quite sure what you what you're choosing yeah, and how, benefic how beneficial it will be. Yeah, you know. how, how it fits in. You know, what, what, yeah. what, 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 how will it turn out? What kind of character will it be? Like you say, you can have half an idea of the path you choose, but um, you're not quite sure how some of the individual choices you make along the way will have ultimately. To the character yeah, that you create. What, exactly. What what will they ultimately amount to, and how much use, how useful will that be when you're actually playing the game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that that's true. That's true. But then again, you come back to that issue, don't you? That is, is it a game that's demanding a degree of commitment from you? Yeah. To yeah. actually read it and understand it and play it and generate two or three characters. That's, maybe that's what it's asking you to do, you know, and yeah. that's when people go, oh, it's too crunchy, but yeah, maybe, but yeah. 
Is it po is it possible to optimize it? Because I think we're all a bit surprised by um, Yasmina Mark's character because he did do the uh, legwork in trying to understand the rules a little bit more <laughs> and possibly yeah. So, yeah. So, somehow every time uh, Yasmina comes onto the stage, you know, it's stand back ghouls. You cleave in two with uh, mm. with a single blow. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think part of it is if you with the life path thing and the skill trees, if you perhaps go for pure fighty stuff, that probably takes you down a certain road. But if you try and balance your character out maybe a bit more, perhaps that that offsets some of the fighting skills. I don't know. Because I think that's one of the things, isn't it? it? You've got to start on certain skill trees to open up other skills, haven't you? So like for me, I think I had to pick the patron skill to open up sorcery because it says something like, you know, you can now choose sorcery skills. So the patron, the idea I think is I've, I've had a tutor who's taught me this. But that in itself is like a dead dead talent. It's dead because it doesn't do anything. It just opens up. So you could say if you manage to avoid those talents that open up other talents and just pick talents that are all functional in the game, that probably makes you a more powerful character perhaps. Okay. And uh, the next uh, thing you've chosen is effects. When we played Star Trek initially, I wasn't entirely convinced by this because it's a funny, it's a funny thing, isn't it? It involves, it involves funny dice, doesn't it? It involves custom made dice really. Yeah. So a weapon will do, four dice damage and you roll if, if you use the custom dice the the custom dice have two blank sides don't they yeah they have a side with one on a side with two on and then they have two sides with an effect like a little symbol. star trek it's the star trek symbol what is it in conan it's it's, it's it's like it's a, skull, a, isn't a it? well I, i've used a skull but it's oh, right. normally uh like a phoenix sign and throughout the rule books they indicate I'm not, even sure, I'm not even sure what it looks like a, a fly has been squ uh, squashed on yeah, the Yeah, I've got it here. Actually, yeah, it does yeah. look like a little eagle or phoenix, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so anyway, two two little phoenixes. So you roll the dice and you're either going to get a one or a two, a blank or a phoenix. And a one or a two is damage. So one, one damage, two, two damage. And a blank is nothing. And an effect, the phoenix is an effect, isn't it? So I think that's, does that count as one damage? Mm, yeah and an effect and weapons have certain effects don't they yeah that they will inflict on your opponent and you can do it with normal d6s can't you, you can do you know yeah. one's a one two's a two ignore threes and fours and five and sixes are effects but doesn't it's not quite not quite as much fun visually it's more exciting when you see the phoenix or whatever it is uh yeah. pop up um, and, and actually does does sticks in your brain a bit quicker and it's yeah. and it's easy to explain to people who haven't played it before because when we played star trek i'd played it for a while and you came in a bit later didn't you and you said to me what's going on with the d6 is i have a clue yeah <laughs> it's a tree why are you ignoring threes and fours and you have to go right but with the symbols the symbols it it makes sense doesn't it oh it's a symbol yeah. it's not a five or a six it's a little picture and that means something special's happened you know they're fun and these people know it that's why they make these custom-made dice at 20 pounds a pop yeah. For mugs like us to buy, they, they know what they're doing, these people. The, the reason I like the effects is um, they're not guaranteed. That's that's important, isn't it? Because 
you know, the effect of a particular weapon. It's a particular effect. There are things like vicious, don't they? And my dagger, even a dagger, if you if you do an observation, if you hold hold your attack for a round and do an observation roll successfully, you can strike. And if you hit, it, it becomes vicious, doesn't it, or intense or something mm-hmm. like that. It, that if you roll an effect, that's what the effect is, and they can have like crippling effects on your enemies. But the interesting thing about them is, you don't always get an effect. So there's that fun of rolling dice and going, oh, yeah, great, I've got an effect. Your weapon has an effect. It's a, your weapon may have an effect that gives it a nice kind of gamey element to it that you may or may not have this effect. But it, and it also just may, makes combat sort of more exciting, doesn't it? You know, yeah. it's not just, all right, I've hit it, right, D8 damage, okay, six, all right. Move on. It's you've if you've hit it, you've done some damage, but there's an effect. Something dramatic happened when you've hit this opponent. Something dramatic might happen, and that that makes combat more colourful. I think. Yeah, and I think um, the other element to that is that you've got two different levels of hit points, if you like. Mm. Um, so you've got your vigor that depletes first, isn't it? So slowly getting worn down by the fight, uh, you have yeah. a set the which is a bit like the uh, D&D hit points, which could go down and down and down, but you have no discernible effect. Then you've got another level, which is harm or wounds that you take. Mm. And as soon as you start cutting into those, then you start, everything comes a step harder. So you have to have an extra success to succeed. So, you know, then, then, then you start to feel it. So you've got like the combination of both elements, haven't you? You've got the hit, hit points and also the death spiral. Of, yeah, it does a ni- it has a nice balance between, all right, being hit with a sword is not initially devastating, which would kill some of the fun in combat, wouldn't it, if it was too deadly? Yeah. But at the same time, once you've taken a wound, it, it does feel quite realistic in terms of, yeah, you've, you've got a wound now and doing stuff when you've got a wound is harder to do, which is harder to do, the, like you say, the death yeah. spiral thing, which is quite nice. It's, it's, it's weird to say it's quite nice, death spiral. It's obviously not. But um, it is quite nice in terms of the game because, you know, in some games, just losing hit points can be a bit a bit dull at times, can't it? it yes. Particularly when you get to the higher levels and uh, if you're having like yeah. a heroic incident and you know you've just got to churn through those uh, hit points. I mean, we were we were fans. I think initially we were fans of hit points and we always thought, what's wrong with hit points? Go yeah. keep to hit points. But less than, I'm less and less inclined with that. I like the idea of wounds. I like it in Savage Worlds because it does a similar thing. I like it in Conan because the idea is right. You, you've taken a sh- an arrow, you've taken a sword blow. So... Striking back is more difficult because you you are injured. It's a perfectly reasonable thing. Before we move off effects, I just want to mention as well um, the idea of displays of might and power, which also have an effect. Mm. So these are more like uh, psychological um, intimidation Mm. that might be used in battle. And I think this was at the point where... um, the hairs on the back of my neck uh, stood up when I thought we're in the Hyborian lands. The moment when uh, Yasmina cut the head off her enemies <laughs> yeah. and held it up, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you can use that to inflict uh, damage, yeah. <laughs> psychological damage on your opponents by holding yeah. up severed head. Well, that's it because I think I can do that as a sorcerer. I've got this thing called animal beast shape, which means you can transform 
into an animal and you can transform i think part of your body into an animal so you could turn your head into a wolf's head and that can have an effect on people as well can't it so again going back to that thing of whilst it's Conan and you would imagine a Conan game is all about cleaving people's heads off with a sword and if you're weak if you're a weak non-combat character you've no role to play in it is quite the opposite actually isn't it if yeah. you can you can be intimidatory you can be that kind of character that would frighten the opponents you know scary witch doing scary stuff not fighting but all these dumb warriors might look at it and think oh my god run away yeah because they're frightened yeah that's kind of good that's a good thing a good thing about it what we also look at you looked at uh, three highlights mm. what what do you think it doesn't do so well so one thing it doesn't do so well well I'm, I'm tempted to say magic not that the magic isn't interesting but i think sometimes the magic is a bit confusing what it how it works you know so i've got this beast shape thing and i can do all sorts of things with it but when you read some of the guidance on it you think i'm not sure I'm not sure that that works how difficult has different difficulty levels for different things but it seems to be contradictory in places which is is odd you know i don't know for, for example it says uh, feral within so you don't you don't cause you don't have any cosmetic effect but you get the ability of an animal and it says average difficulty one and then it gives an example and it says strength of the bear so that you're getting the strength of the bear rather than being a bear and that's difficulty four and you think hmm, okay i don't so should it be difficulty one or should it be difficulty four difficulty four seems really hard whereas the feral within spell seems easy because you're not completely transforming into an animal and you just scratch your head over it a bit yeah scratch your head over a bit but that said that said it's probably unfair to pick on magic because i think that exemplifies a problem throughout the rules there are bits of it is a bit in places it's a bit confusing it's hard work can be hard work and i think you said this when we've been playing sometimes you're never quite sure whether you're doing it right yeah i think that's true with the magic i've cast this spell a few times i've done a few bits with it but i wasn't quite sure whether i was doing it right yes i I think that so it's it's perhaps unfair to pick on magic but i think from, from my perspective as a player that's where the confusion arose and then when you look at other things you realize there's a little bit of confusion here and there yeah. on other things that i find it with uh, guard so guard is a, a maneuver you can make with certain weapons so if you length of your weapon uh, it means you can put yourself between so it's the old strike rank thing where if you've got a spear you can mm. set it on guard so the person with the dagger can't get near to you it's you can use uh, you can use uh, maneuvers or you can use uh, momentum to remove that guard and to get an edge if you, as soon as you get beyond that spear, the person with the dagger is going to have an advantage. It's explained three different ways in the rules, and I'm still not quite sure how we do it. So I've been ignoring it. Yeah, the old yeah, the old trades ignore it. Let's not worry with that rule because we don't quite know what it is. Yeah, I think that's a problem. So it's not it's not necessarily that there's bad rules, but I think some of the rules are perhaps a little bit badly explained in places. I suppose it's one of those things. It's a big rule book. There's a lot of text, and they are trying to create an atmosphere to make it feel like the world of Conan, and they do that very, very well. But perhaps within doing that, 
their eye goes, you know, the eyes off the ball a little bit in terms of rule clarity. You know, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the old it's the old problem, isn't it, with the game balancing. Probably, I, I I speak as a non-games designer, so games designers can write in and tell me I'm talking rubbish. But sometimes it seems like there's a balance, isn't there, in a game between clarity, rule clarity, functional. This is a tool to be used, clarity, and writing the game to engage people and make people feel excited about playing the game from a from a kind of atmosphere content kind of perspective. You know, and I think that's what they do. There's that tipping point, isn't there, where perhaps he does a good good job of creating an atmosphere, but some of the rules are a bit, should have been a bit clearer. Yeah. But by making rules very clear, does that kill some of the atmosphere in a game? You yeah. know, becomes like a Haynes's manual then. That people don't want that. Or people writing it don't want to do that because they feel it's a bit clinical and a bit cold, you know. Yeah. And I've heard some people say that, they can't see what's inherent in the mechanics that make it um, like a corner, the world of corner. But I don't agree with that. I think, I think as we demonstrated with the life path system, how momentum can contribute to it and yeah. uh, how yeah. the effects are woven into the world of corner. I think it does that really, really well. And I think uh, you're right. You know, some it it's just getting through that. Um, pain threshold of mastery isn't it but it is a game it is a game system that i kind of feel like i sort of know how it works to a level of confidence but i'm never quite sure i'll know absolutely how everything works (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. but but i've got i've got enough knowledge of it to feel like it's enjoyable yeah and it it pays off doesn't it again a lot of games are like that aren't they 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 might seem, you might have a bit of a deep breath when you get the rules and think, oh, here we go. There's a lot here, you know, to get through. But but sometimes that pays off. There are rewards there, aren't there? Yeah. Because there'll yeah. be things in it that give it a bit of depth and a bit of richness and a bit of complexity and a bit of nuance that maybe simpler games don't have. Not, not necessarily yeah. the case, but sometimes that's the case. Yeah. And you can't always have a soft roll with bacon on it. You know, sometimes <laughs> it, yeah. it does you good to have some granola with a bit of banana cut on top of it. A bit, bit of crunch. <laughs> oh, I'm ruining my own argument here. Just touch of that metaphor holds together. <laughs> Thanks, Blighty. Goodbye. Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We're your genial, some might even say avuncular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. Where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going and join the smart party. Level up your gaming mojo at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. Box. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got the uh, settees and the comfy armchairs out and one of those little rugs, you know, that goes round in high back winged chairs because we're going to have a bit of luxury. We've had a few beers and I've got Blythe with me. Hello. And I've got Eddie with me. Hello, Eddie. Hello there, Duke. So we're going to watch 
uh, what we have watched, Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 film featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger in his first feature film, I do believe. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, I hope so. Because <laughs> that, that's, that, that's a reasonable excuse, I suppose. It's starting <laughs> as you mean to go on, though. Uh, like, yes. I think it's quite interesting because I've been reading some of the uh, contemporary reviews of uh, the film and it got slated, and largely because of uh, Schwarzenegger's performance. And they didn't realise at the time who he would become, did they? No, they didn't. Biggest film star of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. His performance, I think I think it should be shown in all drama schools as part of the curriculum, though, shouldn't it? To, to demonstrate how, you know, when you're acting, if you have nothing to say and nothing to do, that doesn't mean you shouldn't act in some way, as in look like you have an inner life. He does this thing of, I, the, the, obviously, they don't, <laughs> don't give him any lines, and he just stands there like a piece of wood. I've got to say, he doesn't need to act because he actually is Conan. He's straight from Frank Frazetta's posters of Conan. <laughs> like, I don't know if the director said, he is Conan personified. He doesn't need to do any acting, he just needs to be there and say <laughs> his lines. Arnold is, is the McDonald's of the acting world, isn't he? It's, it's not superb. You know, you're not going to watch uh, or Lawrence Olivier. He's just going to do his stuff, say his lines and... He's okay. He's good, and he's not terrible to watch, but he's okay to watch. But he's perfect to look at. Absolutely perfect. No other person could have done that role at that time. Even now, I don't think anybody could have done that. Do that role now. I mean, when you consider the thoughts of is it Charles Bronson and Sylvester Stallone to do that role, Arnold Schwarzenegger is Conan, and he always will be perfect. I think I would have liked to see the, the Bronson version. Conan the geriatric. How old would Giles Bronson have been then? I, I, I thought you said Piers Brosnan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Piers Brosnan. <laughs> By crumb. So we started as we mean to go on. I mean, I think all I'm going to do throughout <laughs> this is adjudicate between uh, <laughs> the, the two of you. Because yeah. you've got opposing opinions on this. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting what you, you said as well, because I know that John Millius, who uh, directed this, he was given an instruction by Schwarzenegger. He said, treat me like a dog, directly, direct me like a dog, I will follow your instruction. And uh, there's yeah. not many actors who would admit to uh, accepting that as a, a form of direction, is there? No, but, I mean, the directors and the, the casting people were wise enough to, to cast experienced actors around him. And James Earl Jones and Max von Sydow uh, were there. And James Earl Jones took Arnold to one side and helped him to deliver his lines. To me, there's nothing wrong with that. And he pulls it off. He's, he's not terribly wooded. He's, he's, ac- he's acceptable. You know, he's a, he's a five out of ten, in my view. <laughs> um, but he's better than as a robot from the future my favourite performance <laughs> in the 80s from uh, Schwarzenegger was uh, Commando I suppose we'll, 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 we'll get on to that anyway. when did you first watch it then? you know I can't remember I don't know whether I saw it with you two or I, it must have been a video that would that would picked up so I don't think I went to the cinema to watch it I think it was my sister who was the only one in the family who had a, a, a video recorder at the time we probably picked it up from the video shop and watched it with the nephew, Kyle. Last time, the, the first time I watched it uh, was last week when he told me to. Not quite, but I realised. Shame, on, shame on you. Well, I re- what I realised was, I, I, don't, I didn't watch it at the cinema because I think we were, we were too young. But what I realised last week watching it end to end 
for the purposes of this podcast, is that I've never watched it end to end. I've always seen bits of it on the TV. I, I found it really boring as a film. I, I think really dull. It's quite slow. I feel like uh, Fiona Bruce, not for the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> between you two, are you? <laughs> to me, it perfectly flows all the way through. I mean, every scene in it is right. It's not like a hodgepodge of naff scenes like Krull is. I mean, Krull is a campy favourite thing, but it's naff. Conan, it's like, it, it flows. What, what I will give you is that it does, it does sort of look quite good. And I think at the time, I, I, I think you're right, it attempted to create a sword and sorcery film in the, in the way that you would imagine a sword and sorcery film to be. So when you do look at other films around that time, like Krull or Sword and the Sorcerer, that kind of thing, they always do feel a little bit off-beam in that they're not quite what you imagine Sword and Sorcery to be. So I, I think you're right. It does try to give you Sword and Sorcery, Robert E. Howard, Sword and Sorcery. I'm not entirely convinced how successful it is, but it, but it does try to do that. And in, in parts, it does look it does look good. It's, an, it's, a, it's a genuine attempt to look like that kind of film, you know. It, to me, it's beautifully cast. And it's beautifully set. And, this, and, the, and the outdoor stuff in, I think it was Spain. Every location, like the rocks that they filmed in, it's, it's just great. It's great. They spent a lot of money on it. I mean, they could tell that. I was really looking forward to it because it was uh, covering Starburst quite a lot. Before it came out, it was giving like, a lot of previews and there was interviews with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I saw photographs. And I couldn't mm. see it at the cinema. Uh, but I got the uh, tie-in book, you know, I suppose the camp's uh, tie-in book and uh, link art. And I um, I read the uh, read the book uh, before I saw the film and... Um, I have to say that probably my version in my head was probably better than the film I actually saw. But I saw the film first with my dad. He got VHS, he got it from his video club. I managed to convince him. And it was one of those where it was very uncomfortable watching the uh, sex scene with the witch at at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a bit of that, isn't it? A bit of a kind of 80s nudity. All all films of the 80s always had a bit of nudity, didn't they? He was all right with that. It was when it got to the pit fighting and the violence in that that he he turned to me and said, "It's a bit much, this, isn't it?" Yeah, we were loving it. I was I was loving it. I, I, <laughs> I, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it when I first saw it. It's an interesting point that you make about the pictures in Starburst because I remember that copy of Starburst that you had, and I remember looking at the pictures, and the pictures did did make it look fantastic. The stills from the film make it look fantastic. It's only when the pictures start to move that it goes wrong. I seem to recall reading it in a in a comic book before I saw the film. Yes. I seem to have some image somewhere of the wheel of pain in a com- in a graphic yeah. novel, comic book, or whatever. I don't know where I got that from because I wasn't an avid comic book reader. Okay, so it starts off with no old prints between the ears and all that. Uh, malarkey and it's um, said by the uh, we'll meet him later on it's like a sorcerer isn't it the sorcerer character does the uh, narration at the beginning which I think is disappointing when you've got James Earl Jones it would have been good to have his voice saying it wouldn't it mm, yeah it should have yeah. Yeah. yeah Conan's dad is um, forging a sword tells him about steel the mythic qualities of steel in rides uh, Thulsa Doom and kills all his family 
chopped his mum's head off. I thought his mum would put up more of a fight. Seems a bit... Well, uh, she could have been mesmerised by James Earl Jones' eyes or persona. Or his weave. Possibly. He's got a great weave, hasn't he? That um, bob he's got is fantastic. <laughs> that hair, that fringe. Who's cut that fringe? Is it one of the uh, the, the slave girls in his weird cult? I hope he had her executed for that. Shocking, <laughs> well, like, shocking fringe. It's a guy who's a slayed. Yeah, the bass guitar. The guitarist out of slayed, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Dave Hill, isn't it? Dave Hill, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dave Hill, that's all to do in the style of Dave Hill. And uh, Conan, with the rest of the children, are taken into slavery. And they go on the, uh, I called it the turny thing, but it was the wheel of pain. It's what it yeah, I thought it was a wheel of war, so you corrected me. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's the tree of war we get later. Tree of war later. Yeah. Which makes it difficult of... with the old uh, Hyperborean landmarks, isn't it? Turn right, <laughs> the wheel of pain. Is she not a wheel of war? No, it's tree of but, pain, the wheel of war. No, it's not. That is, that is so iconic. Now, is that is the Wheel of Pain in Robert Howard's novels, or is no. that from the film? Well, that's, that's from the film. That's perfect. Was developing. I mean, a young lad spending twenty years pushing a bloody millstone around on his own would turn out like Arnold Schwarzenegger, wouldn't he? You know what I mean? would. All muscles, and his mind's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he gets that later. He gets his mind back later in the gladiatorial pits. True. Yeah, we don't want to get onto that. <laughs> but he was never an academic. Conan is not an academic. <laughs> Aquilonia, University of Aquilonia. He, he, was, uh, he was smart, though, wasn't he? Conan, depicted in the novels, has got a kind of acuity, like plays people off against each other. And... Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit more about him. Mind you, it'd be hard to have less about you, Charles. It is a good device, though. Like Eddie said, it is a good device to show the passage of time as well, isn't it, with the yeah. Yeah. the wheel turning. I did wonder what it was. I mean, you said it's a millstone. It's in the middle of nowhere, so what's it doing? I don't know, actually. I'd just yeah. love to find out, actually. I'd right to Arnold. I wondered, I wondered if it was some kind of Hyperborean gym where they were. <laughs> the, the idea was they were kind of building him up to be a pit fighter. I don't know. I like to think that that wheel turning is actually like a punkawa somewhere uh, in Tulsa Doom's temple. It's like flapping a uh, fan or something, <laughs> you know, going up and down, like a string that's going all the way. Yeah. <laughs> it, could have, it could have resonated more. I mean, it's, it's out of context now. It could have resonated more in the uh, early to mid-80s, you know, mass unemployment kind of a horror yeah. scene of this is what you might end up doing turning yeah. a wheel for no apparent reason it's a Fact weird government written. employment scheme <laughs> so we have the uh, gladiator scene and that that again is quite a good montage isn't it it's uh, like yeah. a mean fight don't it and you see him develop his tactics and manoeuvres and it's kind of it's right it just does that it doesn't hang about it's probably only five minutes on each scene of if that I would have thought before it moved yeah. on so it's it sets um, it up perfect so he, um, and then there's uh, other scenes where he uh, is chased by dogs and he falls into the warrior's tomb doesn't he this was a good still classic scene classic fantasy scene that you don't get in others where he tumbles into this underground chamber and he's stirring down this corridor like tunnel to this throne with a skeleton on the end I mean that is Perfect. You don't get that in Krull. 
<laughs> you get Bernard Breslau. This is more compelling, though. Yeah, you're right. You get, and it, and it, but he acts that perfect. I mean, he's a, he's not the best actor, but he stands there, and you can see his doubt, and he's kind of suspicious of where to go. And it, and the way he takes that sword from the camera to me, it's one of the classic scenes in that film. What about the uh, we next we next get the witch encounter, don't we? So he oh, goes yeah, into the winch. The, Sexy, the sex, the sex witch. Sex, the sex she witch. Juices him in. Which is a throwaway scene and just an excuse to have some uh, nudity in it. But actually gives him the clue of where to go because up to then he doesn't know what anything about Thor's to do. And he's mm-hmm. like, kind of, well, this guy is wandering in the desert. But then suddenly he encounters a witch who says, You seek the snakes, two headed snake is in this city. She turns into a ball of lightning or something. She yes. does, yeah. You know, I thought I thought she'd fly off and come back, but you don't see her anymore, do you? That's it. No, the money spent on it. That's what I mean. This was one of these British fantasy films. She'd be there again further on in the film, but no, they spent the money and she's gone. <laughs> yeah, but good. <laughs> no, there's a lot of money so, in that film. So the um, uh, the next uh, the next encounter is uh, you your play character, this uh, Eddie. Thief. Subatai, yeah. So you're playing him when we do the. Uh, that's that's me. So they head off to Zamora to seek doom, um, where they encounter Linda McCartney. No, uh, Valeria. The... <laughs> Linda McCartney, the vegetarian barbarian. Yeah, this is this is a good scene. This though, isn't it? The Tower of Serpents. Okay, let's uh, let's set you off. I'll I'll pull that I'll I'll pull that forward. The Tower of Serpents, where they encounter the big big snake. No expense spared. Classic scene number two. <laughs> where they, where they perfect RPG fodder. They climb up that tower. Uh, why they don't go in through a side door, I don't know. But they climb all the way up and they lower themselves down to encounter the giant snake. While Valeria goes into the the cultist's room. All of that. Yeah, she dresses as a cultist, doesn't she? Trope, yeah. isn't it? I don't know why, actually, because it doesn't make any sense. It looks beautiful. It's well done, and the you know the whole thing is. Are you are you a member of the Arnold Schwarzenegger fan club? No. Are you to the, are you the secretary of the Arnold Schwarzenegger fan? Is is the pub uh, is the pub meal? Steak <laughs> kidney pie. Don't tell her, Linda McCartney, uh, Valeria. She no, no, she'd be very upset, wouldn't she? You see, I don't think she's. I don't think Valeria's very good in it. She, she doesn't. The actress playing Valeria doesn't seem convinced at all by any of it. Wasn't mm. an experienced actress, and neither was Subutai. He, he wasn't an. He was a surfer. Could you believe that? He wasn't an experienced actor actor at all. So the three main leads, all non-actors. She was a dancer. He was a surfer, and Arnold was a bodybuilder. So, uh, it's like a joke. Bodybuilder, surfer, and actress, and a dancer walk into a walk temple, into a secret temple, kill a snake, <laughs> and then have sex. Don't they? They have sex after the snake uh, episode, yes. and they're captured yeah. and brought to Osric, Max mm. von Sydow, and he gives them a side quest, doesn't he? He says uh, his princess is now a zealot in Doom's cult. They don't. They don't take it. They initially play hardball. Valeri do, yeah, doesn't. Yeah. doesn't want to do it, but Conan has other thoughts, doesn't he? So he he sets off now. 
I've been with you so far, uh, Eddie, but this scene where they meet all the cultists at the Temple of Set, this is where it goes a bit off the rails for me. This is where I fall out with it a bit. So you've got hundreds of cultists, haven't you? There's a few of them doing ups, upside your head, you know, that um, thing where they're all in a rowing boat. The wedding's on the floor, and what they yeah. have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> to this day. It's an art. It's, it's just an orgy, isn't it? They're all canoodling. So, so, so Conan decides he's going to dress as one of them, so he takes one aside and he robs his clothes, doesn't he? And so he looks like yeah. a clan member. Which remarkably fit Arnold Schwarzenegger. But he, he tries walking amongst them, doesn't he? And uh, <laughs> it is quite humorous because he tries um, like hailing one of them, doesn't he? Like cr- trying to fit in. In about five years' time, he'd be able to pull that joke off. But at that stage, he wasn't able to. Yeah, when he when he's filled twins, uh, is that enough to spoil the film? No, no. Live, the old sneak amongst the enemy role playing thing, isn't it? Where you're going to scout the camp out, so you're going to disguise yourself and you look awkward, but they're not bothered, so you get away with it. You roll a, you know, if your skill roll is. 45%, you get a 46% and you just uh, pull it off. So, he, which he does, he pulls it off. Meanwhile, Tulsa Doom is giving a lecture, isn't he? He's giving a lecture on the. Now, now help me with this, Eddie, right? He's giving a lecture on the powers of uh, flesh, right? And to demonstrate the power of flesh, he shouts somebody on a cliff up above who jumps off and, and ruins his decking. What's he proving? Who knows? Who cares? He's either doing right. He's either doing two things, isn't he? He's well, saying, "I've got the power." A mother might do. She doesn't anymore. Is he saying that the human human beings are so powerful that look, I can make somebody jump off a hill, right? Or is he saying, "Look, if you drop a human body, it'll destroy your decking." What's he For saying? Me, that's one. Of, that's one of the most compelling parts of the film because it demonstrates the. Religion is nonsense. A lot of it. <laughs> typical religious leader, isn't it's, it? You know, like, you, no one really knows what he's talking about. All the cultists are looking at each other thinking, what does that mean? I don't know. He's our leader. Just just go along with it, you know. He's the Archbishop it's of Tulsa to Doom. Just go along with it. Is it Jim Jones' analogy of the uh, the cult suicides in James Town or Jonestown or wherever that was? That was in the 70s. So he's saying, you know... He's got this control. It's far more powerful. A new corner. His control relied on steel, is. and that's your that's your god. I can control that flesh. I can control Luke. Bang, and this woman dies. Because I think up to then, he'd appear that bad, does it? Apart from killing Corner's mother, <laughs> but, <laughs> the um, whole village. But, but apart from, from that, <laughs> it's it's to it's to, <laughs> it's to re- Reinforce, should I say, reinforce the fact that James Earl Jones is a is a bad person in the film. Every single she's probably the one. She's probably the one who gave him the haircut. Of the lib, the fringe. She's probably the, the one who gave him the fringe. Mm. He's thinking, oh, I get you he's back now. Jump off dresser. that cliff. Yeah, the hairdresser <laughs> jumps off the cliff straight through the decking. Everyone else is thinking, go on, I have to cut his hair. Tulsa Doom says, right. Head for the tree of war. Not the turny thing, the uh, wheel of pain. This time it's your time on the tree of war. Now, 
This is a classic scene. Front page of Starburst magazine, this. Arnold Schwarzenegger spread eagled on a big tree. Crucified, isn't he, on the tree? They yeah. crucify him on the tree, yeah. And then the vulture yeah. comes over, he bites its head off. Packing away. That's right, he bites the vulture's head off. <laughs> Perfect. That's what I'd do if a vulture was pecking away at me. Well, it's like a vulture looks like one of the cast of Pipkins or something. Unless it? you get rabies or something, I don't you know. know. So, <laughs> so then, then along comes Eddie, uh, Eddie's play character. If Hartley Ear was pecking away. Subutai comes along <laughs> and he takes him to Blythe's uh, play character, Akiro, the Wizard mm. of the Mounds. And now this is a this is a quite a, a good scene. This one, isn't it? This is quite surreal. This isn't it? Because they paint it on him, don't they? I think that is a fantastic scene. As battling the gods of the paint all these runes over his face, and it looks brilliant. It looks yeah, it does, really it does good. Look, that's, that, that's, that's classic scene number three. And that's that's what I mean about it. it does look good. That that does look good and again I think if there'd been stills of that hadn't there in magazines you think you know right, let's look at that that's fantastic it does look does look good and they have to fight off the uh, demons don't they the demons uh, come in the night and uh, I had a bad copy and I couldn't really see what was going on but it looked like something was going on they agree to help Conan to infiltrate the temple of Set they decide uh, to break in whilst uh, disguised as zebras that's right. They have the black and white war paint on, don't they? Strange reason. Yeah. They walk in, and it's um, it, it's like the set from Caligula, isn't it? It's very marble, very white, and there are people making groaning noises. It looks like an orgy, but it don't look like they're doing much. They're eating fruit, a lot of them. Yeah, an orgy, but they're not they're not quite sure what to do. I like an apple. Yeah, but it doesn't have that effect on you, does it? Well, it would if it was fed to you by a, a semi-naked woman. I don't think I'd make well, that noise. Maybe it's my age. It could be our age. Could be your age, couldn't it? You know, a younger man, maybe. You know, a Granny Smith's <laughs> apple, a naked slave girl. Who knows? But and then in the middle of this scene, they're mixing some green emulsion. <laughs> in my first house, I used to have that colour in my uh, bathroom. It's like a minty green, wasn't it? And they're like mixing it on. You buy it from Thulsa Doom? <laughs> I did. <laughs> buy, it from, buy it from Mr Doom? <laughs> I think you're nitpicking. It's, they'd run out of money on that, aren't they? They obviously <laughs> run out of yeah. money. Yeah, now you say that. that. Calder and budget are gone, haven't it? Yeah. You say that, but now comes the classic moment. I, lo- I love this scene. So there's a leopard looking at Thulsa Doom and his chin comes out a bit and the- it cuts back to the leopard looking at him, thinking, hang on a minute, what's going on here? His, uh, <laughs> his chin's coming out. And then it cuts back to Thulsa Doom, and, he's, and his chin's getting a bit longer, and it cuts back to the leopard, and the leopard's going, yeah, it's definitely moving that. It is. The leopard is the best actor in it. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't have a line or anything, because it's a leopard. It can't it's quite, it keeps cutting back to it, and you can see the leopard's yeah. face going, yeah, definitely. His, his chin... Arnold should have said, treat me like a leopard. <laughs> but it, it looked, did I think the chin looked good? Does his transformation into a snake look good? He looked a perfect serpent man. How many Carla Cthulhu scenarios have you seen? Really? <laughs> Waffle on about serpent men. 
That was the <laughs> perfect transformation into a serpent man. Brilliant. So he, he turns into a full snake, doesn't he? And disappears up and all that he's got in the uh, temple. And then battle commenced, doesn't it? After the after this scene, they get they prepare traps, don't they? I mean, that's me only slight cringe. They look like two um, German heavy metal rockers, don't they? <laughs> the big mustaches and two henchmen. <laughs> they, they suit. They, I, I think the bodybuilders or something. I don't know who they are, but. But they, they they don't quite look the part, but they've got duff wigs. They look like a spinal tap. They look like a cross between spinal tap and the scorpions or something. Um, <laughs> German but, heavy metal bands, yeah. So, so remind me what happens here because um, there just seems to be a lot of um, spikes and a lot of horses falling over. And we see um, Conan with his uh, furry helmet on. It's a classic Seven Samurai, isn't it? two samurai, or three, with a wizard. Because uh, before then, Valera dies, doesn't she, with that snake arrow. You forget that classic scene. Classic scene number four. Yeah, she, I'm glad you're keeping touch. Yeah, she, yeah. I've lost Ken. Doom shoots Valera with the arrow. That is mm. snake, that is straightened he out. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, three guys, a wizard, Subutai and Conan, fighting the henchmen. And through this maze of rocks and spikes and what have you, and they obviously prevail, Thulsa Doom runs away at the end back to his temple, leading to the final confrontation. They end up on this superb set, which is built into a mountainside, of these steps going up to this temple. Oh, I remember it now, yes. his way around mm. the back. And he yeah, appears yeah, while right. Thulsa Doom is in front of all his followers. and. He has his father's broken sword, but instead of just lopping his head off in a nice, clean, modern-day effect, he actually chops in once, and there's a spray of blood. And you can see the shock on James Earl Jones's face. But then he hits him again to cut the head off. So it's actually quite a brutal effect. And that's something that must be mentioned about this film. The actual combat scenes are quite brutal. They're not yeah. kind of slash from a distance they're actually chop and you can actually sense the, the, the blade going into the meat of the flesh and it does it does look as though it goes into his neck and the shock in Thulsa Doom's face is, is evident and he obviously cuts his head off and then whizzes it down the steps to his followers and that's and, and then it ends well hasn't he he's rescued Osric's he's Brilliant. rescued Osric's daughter as well hasn't he that is uh, that's Conan uh, the Barbarian and of course it, it Went on to uh, spawn uh, sequels, didn't it? Um, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja, and a whole host of um, rip-off movies from uh, Italian filmmakers. After watching it, I watched the the new one, the other, the more recent Conan the Barbarian, the one I think it was twenty twenty eleven, something like that. Is that kind of interesting? Because even the new one bored me a bit. It's almost like they don't quite know what to do with it. So again, it's like no one's quite convinced with it. It's made you wonder, doesn't it, what, what people are thinking when they're making these films. So when you think of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings film, you know, Lord of the Rings has a kind of kudos and a kind of uh, slightly highbrow thing to it. So maybe the cast are all convinced, but when doing Conan, when they're having a, when they're having a fag break, they're, 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 um, 
the cast all go, what is this Conan? What is it all about? You know, but they don't quite know. It's interesting to watch the new one because I felt exactly the same about the new one. Even then, they were not really convinced about it at all. None of the cast do it with any real conviction, you know, that kind of thing. But well, still, the still argument is the same. Can you name a, a 1980s fantasy film that's better than that, Conan the Barbarian? I think you would struggle. We'll put that. We'll put that challenge to our uh, listeners. If you can name one film from the 1980s that is a better fantasy movie than Conan the Barbarian, get in touch. Thank you very much <laughs> to uh, Eddie. Okay. And uh, thanks, uh, Blythe. Okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Thank you, Jason. He'll be back next time to face the Games Master screen, where, among other things, he'll talk about RuneQuest. RuneQuest is where this all started, and in the next episode, we'll be having a fifth birthday special, with thanks to Patreons, listeners, armchair adventurers, and the Grog Squad for being with us along the way. We'll give some individual shout-outs next time too. Until then... Adios, amigos.